Good morning. The reading this morning is from Genesis 4, verse 1 to 26. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, she, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out into the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahuyel, and Mahuyel was the father of Methushael, and Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal, he was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jabal. He was the father of all who made stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools and of bronze and iron. 
Tubal Cain's sister was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Here ends the reading. Thank you, Carla. If you are in the land of Nod right now, wake up. Good. Well, what pushes your buttons? You know, what gets you really upset? What takes you from being totally chilled out to blood boiling in 10 seconds? Or you might find it easy to think of who pushes your buttons. You know, what is it about that person that really gets up your nose? Because actually the problem, at least in part, is down to you. Because what or who pushes our buttons can go get us a long way to working out what our area of pride is, what it is about ourselves that we're trusting in. What pushes our buttons can help us work out how we, left to our own devices, would go about saving ourselves, would go about making our own worth, deciding on our own identity. Because when that thing comes under threat by someone pushing our buttons, well, that's when our face becomes downcast. So for me, it's if I'm made to feel like I'm stupid. Uh, so I really struggle with people who feel like they're looking down the nose at me. And out for dinner with friends recently, I completely overreacted to what was just plain old banter. It was just friends having a laugh. But I felt it made me look stupid in front of someone who's opinion are really respected. Well, today, thankfully, we're not looking at me. We're looking at Cain and Abel. And it's Cain that we find with his buttons pushed. Verse 5, Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. So we'll have a look at what it is that's pushed Cain's buttons. But let's also let God search and probe our hearts this morning to see if we might be pulling our faces at God for some reason. Here are the questions then that, um, and the warning that God has for Cain. And so heads up, I'll finish this talk by asking those questions and giving us that warning at the end. So from verses 6 and 7, God asks, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So just to give you uh, the context of where we're up to, um, we're looking at these early chapters of Genesis because they're our origin story. They lay out the framework of how we fit in with God and his creation. And they help us 
to know who God is and his purposes for us. In chapter 3, we saw how we rebelled against God's loving, perfect rule because we wanted to call the shots for ourselves. And so we reject life and peace with God and choose rebellion and death instead. And the result for all of us is physical death will come to us all. And that death kind of starts creeping in physically in our relationships with God and with each other. But God doesn't call it quits and go back to the drawing board. Already by the end of chapter 3, we've seen that God is a God of grace, that we don't get what we deserve. So Adam and Eve are clothed by God. Satan is made our enemy by God, so things aren't as bad as they could have been. Um, And the promise to Eve is that one of her offspring will crush the serpent's head. In other words, a human being will defeat Satan and evil once and for all. That's the promise before we've got to the end of chapter 3. So here's an outline now as we come to chapter 4. First up, I've got Graceland, pushing Cain's buttons, making progress. Graceland, pushing Cain's buttons and making progress. So first of all, Graceland, what do we mean by that? Well, the rest of chapter 4 gets pretty gruesome and icky, doesn't it? It's easy to miss that at the start, we find Adam and Eve and their offspring, enjoying God's grace. I mean, they're not in Eden anymore. It's not that great. But wherever it is they are, it's still a land where they're enjoying God's grace. I mean, it's clear that this more difficult life under judgment is still a good life. Adam and Eve are reconciled. Well, at least they've got they've had children. And Eve, at least, seems to have returned to faith in God. She says, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Adam and Eve are still able to partially fulfill their role of filling the earth with more image-bearing humans. And there's development in humanity as well. There's um, stewarding creation as we were made to do. So Abel's keeping flocks. Cain is working the soil. So although in God's judgment, Um, Work now involves painful toil and sweat, built-in frustration. It does still sustain them. It's productive enough that they're able to give some of it away as offerings to God. So whatever happens next is not because the the desperate actions of people in some sort of post-apocalyptic nightmare landscape, where it's the survival of the most ruthless. They haven't got that excuse. Our world is under judgment, sure. It's got built-in frustration and danger. But it's not hopeless. Our world is not abandoned by God. There's enough here to find him and to live for him by faith in response to his grace. Yet, in this grace-filled scenario of things being better than they should be, still Cain finds something to be miserable about. So our next heading, what is pushing Cain's buttons? What's pushing Cain's buttons? See, Cain and then Abel both bring God offerings, don't they? Verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, But on Cain and his offering, 
he did not look with favor. Well, why? Why is Abel's offering favored and Cain's not? Well, it's not that God's got a thing against vegans at this point. It's not that God spent too much time hanging around Australia when he created it, and now he just wants a barbecue with lots of meat. No, it's, it's, it's not just the offering that finds favor or not. It's the man and the offering, the feller and his fruit, the man and his meat. It's what the offering reveals about each man's heart that's important. So Abel's offering is the fat portions of the firstborn of his flock. In other words, the choicest cuts of his very best animals. So if you live off what you grow and raise, giving away your best to God is putting your life in God's hands. It's a very practical, well, what else are we going to have for dinner tonight? kind of way of demonstrating that you trust God, that he is what your life is all about and not yourself. So Abel offered his best. Cain offered something, but not the thing. Cain seems to be holding back. It's like when we were kids, my dad told my brother, Richard, that he had to share a chocolate bar with me. And in dad's wisdom of Solomon, my dad, he said, Richard cuts... Colin chooses. Yeah? Yeah? Wise. So, of course, Richard gets out Dad's metal technical ruler with half millimeter markings and precisely gives me absolutely only exactly what is required. So his heart wasn't really in the idea of sharing. And I don't want to pick on Richard because I'm pretty sure I did exactly the same thing to younger siblings. See, the heart behind Cain's offering is written all over his face. Verse 5. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Cain has got what someone from Manchester, where I'm from, has got a gob on. As in, he's got a miserable gob. Gob being a mouth. That's what he say. If he's someone in miserable, he's oh, got a gob on, haven't you? He's got a face on him. He looks like a bulldog chewing a wasp. He could model for death threats. You get the picture? His face has fallen. Verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? God's asking Cain, Why is my not favoring you and your sacrifice pushed your buttons? Cain's face betrays the fact that he thinks that God owes him a favor for what he offered. In the letter of Hebrews, it talks about this very moment. Um, we read why Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Hebrews 11.4. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. Abel's offering was made in faith, an expression of trusting God, expecting nothing in return. Cain's offering was a transactional one you know i do this good thing for you god and then you owe me one for doing the right thing well that approach to god is paganism offering gifts or good works to god not ultimately for his sake but for what we'll get out of it that's not thanking god for being god 
It's not appealing to God to be God and intervene for us. It's trying to have power over God to oblige him to do something for us. So that's the heart behind Cain's offering. That's why his face is fallen. And we need to guard against that adopting a view of God that somehow he owes us something. Or against another kind of pagan view of God, that somehow God needs our favor or needs our worship. God does want our worship, but only because it's him sharing with us his goodness and his glory. God didn't create us because he was lonely or needed us. God created us out of generosity and to know the goodness of being in relationship with him. So God doesn't owe Cain anything. Verse 7, he says, If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? See, God will always do what is right. And in his grace, God doesn't always operate like we think he should. You see, the thing is, Cain could have offered the most perfectly hearted, generous sacrifice. And God still has the right to be, well, God. Jesus told a parable to tell us what God's rule is like. He tells a story in Matthew 20 of a landowner who hires vine workers at various points through the day, through a long, hot day. And at the end of the day, those hired first thing are really disgruntled because the workers hired at 5 p.m. get the same pay. And that kind of pushes our buttons, doesn't it? You think, well, that's not fair. But... What does the landowner in the story, in other words, what does God say about how he operates? This is from the end of chapter 20. Then he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree, the person at the beginning of the day, didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do with what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Here's how things really are. God is fair, or he's only unfair in how generous he is. We need to hear that. In the story that Jesus told, everyone gets at least what they are owed, what they were agreed to. No one gets ripped off. It's just that God is also generous and gives some more than they are owed. God's generous. He doesn't hold back. Uh, he isn't. He doesn't get impressed with our offerings and then decide to open his divine wallet. You know, we don't need to loosen his wallet by all our good works. He's generous anyway. He just chooses to be generous and offer grace because that's who he is. So Cain's rage is at God for being God. He's angry. He's smarting. He's hurt. So God warns him. Verse 7, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. See, we tend to domesticate sin, don't we? We make it sound, sin sound like a cream cake. You know, we know it's not all that good for us, but it's enjoyable. or It's not all that harmful. But here God describes sin like it's a dangerous animal 
that wants to destroy us. Dangerous enough that we can't just passively let it be part of our lives. We need to take measures to have control over it. God describes it like a battle for control. You rule sin or it rules you. And so it proves all too tragically true. Our next heading, making progress. Making progress. Humanity has progressed outside the garden, we saw, but so too has sin. Verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. My, my brother's keeper. Who knows why Cain thought killing Abel was the thing to do? And I think trying to come up with a reason, just like with Adam and Eve's sin, is giving sin too much credit. God is the God of order and purpose and creation. So sin is chaotic, nonsensical, destructive. It never truly makes any sense. And if this account has a familiarity about it, it's because there's direct parallels here with Adam and Eve's sin in chapter 3. So in chapter 3, God calls out to the man, where are you? In chapter 4, he asks Cain, where is your brother? Chapter 3, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? Chapter 4, the Lord said, what have you done? But those similarities help highlight the differences progress of sin. See, Cain's sin is premeditated. Let's go out to a field. It's now man-on-man sin, not only against God. Cain commits violent sin. And when confronted by God about it, he shows no sign of repentance. Instead, he dismissively makes a joke about it. Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, do you know someone who can't read the room? And makes jokes at the most inappropriate times. Someone apart from me, that is. Do you know someone like that? Well, that's Cain here. When you think about it, what Cain's doing is he's mocking God. He's saying, you think his offering is so great. Why don't you know where he is? Humanity has progressed, but so has sin. And so does God's judgment against Cain. Verse 10. The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And yet still, God shows grace. Cain complains that his punishment is too much to bear, that everyone will want to kill him. But God protects him. Verse 15, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Nod just means land of wandering. So Cain's given security. He's still got somewhere to go, even if it means he's always on the move. And in God's mercy, God, Cain gets to go on and 
and humanity continues to progress. So verse 17, there are the beginnings of human gatherings to live in static communities. Verse 20, there's nomadic communities develop. Verse 21, the arts. Well, I suppose you've got to get teachers from somewhere, haven't you? The arts develop. Verse 22, mechanical skills, like engineers. Yeah. But notice the progression of humanity in culture, society, in technology. They're not condemned here. They're morally neutral. It's like a car or the internet or music. Um, they can be used for great good or for great evil. It's the heart of those using those developments that counts. So again, as humanity progresses, so does sin. Lamech, verse 19, marries two women, and then boasts in verse 23 to his wives. Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech. Hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. <laughs> Cain's avenged seven times, then Lamech. 77 times. I mean, A, never trust someone who refers to themselves in the third person. But Lamech's a psychopath, isn't he? He's basically saying, God's a bit of a wimp. I'm going to show how important I am with mindless, disproportionate violence against anyone who opposes me, even just a little bit. Even if it's just a boy making a mistake. See, God's promise of sanctions in order to protect someone's life and keep peace Lamech twists into a promise to wage war for the sake of his own ego. But that was then, you know, surely we've progressed by now, haven't we, humanity? Especially in a civilized, generally equal society like Australia. We've progressed, haven't we? Well, in 2017-18, almost 31% of the assault hospitalizations for adults aged 15 and over, so everyone is in hospital from assault, 31% of those were a result of family and domestic violence. Six and a half thousand cases. And in 2020, police have linked 35 of the deaths of women to family and domestic violence. See, the secularist human idea that humanity is on a general upwards trajectory, well, that's the blindest faith of all, isn't it? That flies in the face of the evidence. And these early chapters of Genesis describe creation and humanity as we actually find them and gives us a much more compelling account of why things are like they are. Now, I don't reckon anyone here is in danger of murdering someone, but we are all at risk of having our buttons pushed. We all have ways in which, at heart, we're trying to save ourselves. We all have sin crouching at the, our door, telling us lies about God and lies about ourselves, offering us ways of rejecting God's rule and telling God that he owes us something or that he's holding out on us. So to counter that, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. Abel's blood cried out to God, telling the story of Cain's sin. But in Hebrews, we read that the blood of Jesus, his sacrifice for us on the cross, tells a better story. 
Hebrews 12, 24. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood told the story of a life taken in spite and jealousy. It told the story of a sense of entitlement, the fruit of a false belief that God is not generous. Jesus' blood speaks of God who is so generous, he became one of us. So generous, he even gave his life for us on the cross. The sacrifice that pays the price for our sin and makes us right with God when we accept it by faith. As we look to Jesus and his cross, we see just how wrong Cain got God. And keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus will defend us from a prideful sense of entitlement. And as we remember Jesus' promise of our helper, the Holy Spirit, we remember that we're not hidden from God's presence, as Cain was worried about. God lives within us so that we can be confident God who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until Jesus returns. So let's end with those three questions and that warning. Three questions to ask ourselves and a warning to hear for ourselves. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Our verse from Hebrews again. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word, a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray you will search us out this morning where... We are prideful, where we've believed wrong things about you, um, where we're having our buttons pushed. And we return to you in faith. We bring you our praise and our, our lives as a thank offering, um, simply in response to your grace to us, expecting nothing in return, but knowing your promises of generosity and of a perfect eternal life with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to respond in song uh, with the song Rock of Ages.